uh, the part of the New Testament in Acts that talks about, you know, God deliberately put, you know, putting us or having us to grow up in in a particular place um, for the purpose of the gospel. But we should keep in mind that we actually are part of the ethnicities that we're part of for a reason. We're not just, you know, randomly black or randomly white or randomly, you know, Senegalese. Um, And that we have an obligation to the people that he placed us among. Some of people's one time. What up, what up, what up? Ladies and gentlemen, we are back. I know you've been dying without us. This is Across the Intersection podcast. We are two-thirds deep today. This is AJ, and I'm in here with E. Zealous. Eve Zealous? What are you talking about, Eve Zealous? Eve Zealous. Eve Zealous. He's throwing, that's a throwback. You got to go back oh to the God. old uh, Holy Culture Radio. That's the Holy Culture Radio Forum. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can check us out on anywhere that podcasts are ingested. Um, Apple Podcasts and iTunes, Spotify, Google Play and Google Podcasts. Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and the Clouds of Sound. Um, <laughs> as always, you can hit us up on the socials. Uh, we have a Facebook page, Across the Intersection. We are on Twitter at Across This. And we are on the Grizzam at Dive underscore Media. Yeah, yeah. And you can still engage me on Twitter. I'm at E to the V to the. That'll be a lot of fun. So look forward to seeing you there. Yeah, we are the Twitter posse. We are we're on socials, but if you want to really hit us up, get at get at us on Twitter. Um, so A Sweezy is out this week. Um, it's kind of a flip flop because we both been out of the country uh, for the last couple yes. of weeks, and now he's out. So we're in here going deep. I know I've been in the Caribbean uh, for the last eight days, and you have been where? In the Mediterranean. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. we love. All over the world. Yeah, we've been in we've been in islands in the bodies of water um, over the last few weeks. My vacation was awesome. Um, For those of you who know, you know, you know that um, these two make fun of me all the time. I'm 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 not official ADOS, right? So, oh um, my god, I I have not. Whenever they get to that native that uh, native Black American talk, I got to lead a conversation. Nah, I'm just kidding. Actually, I don't know what Yvette Carnell and all of them would consider you because you were actually born here. It's your parents who were born here. Yeah, they would call me first generation. They they go in on some sometimes on first generation. Like, yeah, them first generation Caribbean immigrants. Yeah, they the worst ones. So anyway. um, Yeah, for those of you who don't know, yes, I I, I am first generation. I was the first person in my family born in the U.S. Um, But yeah, so my my family's from the Caribbean. I'm not going to throw out what I officially... Officially, you are ADOS because the Americas means this entire hemisphere, and you are descendants of enslaved people uh, in oh yeah, Africa, oh yeah, who the British, of course, enslaved and yanked from West Africa and brought. So, from that perspective, but I know that ADOS exists. Oh yeah, for the I was going to say yeah. Don't so don't you, tell the uh, native Black American crowd that because they ain't they not hearing that they not hearing that well, at all. I am native Black American myself, <laughs> and thankfully we are not a monolith. But um, <laughs> but actually, they would probably say is go back to Jamaica and get your reparations there. That's probably what they would say. Yeah, that's what they always say. Oh, go go back to your country and get your reparations there, and then you know what what they say. <laughs> you know, anyway, that's where I was. I was in the Caribbean, um, and I know you were in the Mediterranean, in enjoying yes. the life, enjoying yes, the life. Yes, Sicily. 
I mean, for people who are trapped, who are uh, people who have wanderlust like I do, Sicily, oh my goodness. I've been to Italy in the past a couple of times, but I've never been to Sicily, um, to the Amalfi Coast, to Naples, to Pompeii, that whole area. And we spent a good amount of time there. And then we moved up the boot, as they call it, and uh, visited other places. But Sicily is, is, is incredible. And in fact, there is a show on Netflix who can sponsor us anytime. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, sh- <laughs> the show is called Chef's Table. And I believe in the pastry volume, as they call it, of that show, uh, there is a profile of a man who one of my travel mates said we need to go to his gelato place. So when we were in Sicily, we went to that gelato place and the canolos, the gelato, there are a few things that we tasted the very best of in that whole country when we were down in Sicily. So yeah, it was a great trip. Oh yeah, I was on that same tip. I was like, I mean, you know, normally I don't eat much meat anymore. Um, I may dabble in a piece of fish every once in a while or a piece of lamb, but that's pretty much it. I don't eat much meat. Um, yeah. But you know, I hear a foot coming on. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I I told my family. I said, listen, once we once I set foot on the island, I was like, all bets are off. I'm tasting everything. So you know, I had I mean jerk, some curry. I mean goat. I mean I was eating everything. Um, yep. And just to be able to not only taste the food, you know, in its in its native habitat, so to speak, um, from the people that originated, it was just the way it was prepared. Um, I mean, just open air. I mean, it was it was it was amazing. I mean, we we went to a, a place called Scotchies. If you're ever down in in, the, in JA, check out Scotchies. Um, it was. <sighs> Is it a local spot? You oh think yeah, it's like- yeah. You know, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. I I definitely, I mean, when I travel personally, yep. I don't do the whole touristy places. I go into where the people are. So, you know, we, we had to hire a driver just because of where the place I was staying was. It wasn't mm-hmm. readily accessible um, by public transport. So we had a driver drive us around. And it's somebody one of my cousins knew. So it wasn't like, you know, some service it was a guy who had his own company. So my cousin said, yeah, call this guy, tell him I sent you. And, you know, he took care of us or whatever. Um, but I told him, I said, listen, man, I want to go where the locals go. I want to go where the locals go. So I even I have to bring up. Yeah, I have to bring up two things that you said that, again, for those who love to travel, this is really important. Number one, I don't know why, but every place I've gone overseas, the food is fresher than it is here. That's what I don't everybody know says. Have- yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know if it just seems fresher because you're overseas and you're like, oh, I'm on vacation or if it actually is. But I know that we just felt amazing, you know, as well, uh, tasting that food. And I don't know if it's because they have, uh, they don't have Monsanto. Maybe they do. Maybe they do. Shout out to the FDA, right? <laughs> but real talk, I, I, um, I know a, uh, one of my coworkers, she's a vegan, right? Um, but she says, listen, I am vegan in the U.S., she said, when, when, when I travel, no, she was she was 100. She was like, listen, when I travel, I eat everything. And I was like, really? She's like, yeah, but when I come back to the U.S., I'm vegan. I was like, why is that? She's like, because when you, and I never really noticed it, you know, because I've traveled out of the country before, but I just didn't pay attention to it. And she's like, you, when you travel out of the country, the food is different. And mm-hmm. I'm like, for real? She's like, next time you leave the country, just pay attention. I just never paid attention to it. And so I made it a point to pay attention this time. And I mean, literally, even the fruits and vegetables were like half the size of what we see here. 
um, you know, the pineapples, the watermelon. I mean, everything was about half the size that and it a was. better taste. Oh yeah, and it and, and it tasted different. And yeah. so I know that when I get back to work, I'm gonna definitely say, "Yo, I, I see what you were talking about." You know, cause I never really paid attention to it before, but I see that you know the the food was different, which is why I was even open to um, eating up some meat while I was out there. So like I said, you know, I had some curry gold and some jerk chicken and mm-hmm. some curry chicken and you know I broke out my patois I even passed you know a couple people like, wait, 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 wait. You, you spoke, you're fluent in patois yeah man we can talk when we have to talk well, why do you put that bass in your voice though <laughs> that's the way that's the way and you know I was talking with the driver about that because you know I also have family from Trinidad and I was you know we, we were just talking about the difference in the accent and you know how the Jamaican accent is actually very bass heavy, but the Trinidadian mm. accent in some of the southern islands, part of the southern part of the Caribbean, like Trinidad, Tobago, Aruba, even a little bit of Guyana, because of the Indian influence, it's a little bit more nasally. Interesting. So, you know, just being able to tell the difference between the uh, the, the two accents. But yeah, I, well, I broke it out. A bunch of locals thought I was, uh, thought I was <laughs> you know, local. I said, no, no, man, me, me born a foreign. <laughs> well, speaking of drivers, that was the second point I was going to make for, you know, again, the benefit of, of people who love to travel or want to. Um, a good driver, oh, there is nothing like it. So yeah. when we were in Indonesia last year, we were in Italy this year, just like we have, when you have a good one, now mind you, I'm saying good. When you have a good one, not only will they drive, but they know where everything is, they know what to recommend. Sometimes you'll get recommendations based on their friends and them trying to put their friends on. But um, but for the most part, having a good driver changes the whole um, experience. And you don't necessarily all the time have to hire tour guides because those drivers know, you know, know everything. Uh, and, and especially if they speak English well. Yep, yep. So yeah, y'all y'all know we love to get around, so we can highly recommend you know places. Hey, if you want to hit us up about travel, hit us up about travel. Um, but speaking of traveling, oh, is this a segue? <laughs> so you guys know that it's our real. Yeah, this is uh this is real time here. But you guys know that uh, Eve and I both went to HBCUs. Right. Yes. Y'all didn't hear us. Y'all didn't log on this morning to listen to us. You know, bloviate about our 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 globe globe trotting here. Um, Hampton University represent represent home by the sea, the most beautiful HBCU in the country. What about you? What are you representing? Well, I am officially representing the most beautiful HBCU in the country because University of Maryland Eastern Shore was actually ranked in the top ten most beautiful campuses uh, nationwide. Um, You mean number nine? (laughs) Uh, University of Maryland Eastern Shore Uh, yeah represent represent so um, the maroon and gray rock it all day Um, so we and there are 105 other ones just so that people I mean people I think people who listen to this podcast you know are culturally aware enough to know but we have 105 historically black colleges and universities um, of course created because there was a uh, there was discrimination, you know, uh, it's interesting. Uh, you have a country that, that claims to think that we're inferior, but then they don't want to, didn't want to educate us. It's like, okay, you know better than what your claim is, because if somebody is intellectually inferior, it doesn't matter what you do. Right. Um, they're still 
be inferior. But anyway, so around uh, the time of the Civil War, actually as early as 1830 or the 1830s, uh, historically black colleges and universities were created and built uh, to educate those of us uh, who are of African ancestry because we weren't allowed in, in, in other universities. And those HBCUs thankfully still exist. Yeah, and I, you know, me personally, I can identify with some of our stories today. So for, for those of you listening, this is our HBCU episode. Um, we had to kick a switch to the curb because he went to a PWI. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but we, we have a few stories here that we you know pulled out to really you know chop it up and discuss how HBCUs are viewed, you know, people's opinions of HBCUs, particularly African Americans, because you you'll be surprised, you know. And we we, we want to launch off with this. So there's a top high school track star, gentleman's name is Randolph Ross. He's one of the nation's top high school track stars. I mean, you know, for those of you who don't know, most high school athletics they're ranked. Nationally, you know, you'll, you'll have the, the top basketball prospects, top football prospects, track, etc., etc. So, Mr. Ross is one of the nation's top track stars, nationally ranked. And, yeah, you know, and most of the time, you know, those top ranked um, high school stars, they'll, they'll have a, a signing day, you know, where they have like a little press conference and, you know, what have you with sponsors it's a whole big thing now if you go to espn sometimes track is not as big as basketball and football but i know espn will like air the signing days of top basketball and football stars now this one wasn't aired on espn he had a more of a local um press conference but it was still sponsored by adidas because you saw all the logos and everything on there and this gentleman chose an hbcu he chose north carolina a&t now, for those of you who don't know, North Carolina A&T is an HBCU, and they actually have one of the top-ranked track programs in the nation. Yeah. That people didn't know that, that an HBCU has one of the top-ranked eight um, track programs, track and field programs in the nation. Now, that isn't even the story. The story really is the pushback that he received because he decided to choose to go to an HBCU rather than, we say PWI, public white university, but I mean, essentially a big school, big but name I still, school. Exactly, I, I just have to make that distinction because um, you know one of those big big schools and the big conferences is really the point because if he had chosen, you know, uh, Dartmouth, <laughs> which is in the, <laughs> which is in, I think in the Ivy League conference right. or a smaller conference, or if he had cho- chosen a community college, something like that, then the pushback would have still existed. Uh, so it's not just that uh, he chose a PWI, but that he chose not, he chose a, against one of the top um, sports schools in, you know, the Big 12, Big 10, you know, one of those big conferences. And um, the, the push, it's interesting because I saw a balance. I saw a lot of people supporting his decision to go to North Carolina a where his father coaches and um, and to choose that particular school. Um, and North Carolina of course, is one of the top African-American schools, one of the top uh, schools in track nationwide. It's a, pu- a larger public uh, HBCU. A lot of HBCUs are private and smaller, but this is a larger public one. Um, so 
uh, you know, it's it, it's not just that he chose an HBCU, but he chose one where his father works and that's re doing really well in terms of track. So there are a lot of people who supported it and said it made a lot of sense. Um, but then there are people who said, why would you make a decision like that? Um, I don't know if it's necessarily because it was an HBCU, um, but it's because he st decided to stay home in his native North Carolina. And second of all, because he didn't choose Ohio, the Ohio State <laughs> or uh, some other uh, school in one of those large conferences. Speaking from personal experience, I, I do hear what you're saying because, you know, he could have picked a, a smaller school and possibly got some of that same pushback. Um, though I highly doubt it, just because I've experienced that myself personally so much. I mean, I because of the industry that I'm in, it's very few people that I work with or work for that have attended HBCUs. And so, like, in my career, I have literally had numerous amounts of people ask me, oh, where'd you go to school? And then when you tell them, they're like, Man, you seem too intelligent to go have gone to an HBCU. I've literally had they people say, to, wait. They would say that to your face. Say That's it strange. to my face because you have to understand a couple of things about University of Maryland Eastern Shore. One, it's the third campus of the University of Maryland, so a lot of people don't even realize sometimes that it's an HBCU. Okay. They just assume, oh, you're in the University of Maryland. All right, you know, whatever. So, I mean, just, just to keep it 100, most white folks don't even realize that University of Maryland Eastern Shore is an HBCU. When you tell okay. them, oh, I went to University of Maryland Eastern Shore, they just say, oh, okay, and they keep it moving. It's only when you talk to African Americans who are, you know, more culturally aware and know that yeah. UMES is, a, is an HBCU, they'll say, you went to HBCU? And now I've literally had black people to my face in people who I would consider intelligent, mind you. We're not just talking about ignorant folk. People who I would at the time have considered intelligent, culturally aware, um, say things like that to my face. Like, yo, you just seem too sharp to have gone to an HBCU. And I'm like, yeah. what? So, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, it, and it's happened enough times for me to really have to take some inventory. Like, man, I need to reevaluate this person. Like, that. that's a... You know, that's not what I would have expected them to say. So to hear, I can only imagine the pushback that this young man probably received. I'm talking about from black people, not just, you know, white people. Oh, you go into HBC, blah, 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 blah. You know, and people try to call it racist or whatever. But I'm talking about the pushback that he probably received from black people because of the negative view that a lot of affluent African-Americans actually hold to that's HBCUs. Really that's really interesting. I mean, you know, we, we just, we, both of us come from completely different experiences in that respect. I know when I was growing up, like, first of all, Hampton attracts a lot of affluent African-Americans. So it's just strange, which which is just kind of strange that you're, ex I'm exposed to affluent African-Americans who highly um, uh, regard HBCUs and you've been exposed to ones who who don't. So it's, it's I don't know, It's I guess it shows the diversity uh, of cultural perspective that we have uh, in the African-American community where you have some who, you know, who love, <laughs> who, who love our institutions and understand that, uh, that these institutions not only provide a college, good college education, which many institutions can, but then the added benefit 
of the HBCU experience, the cultural education, being around black college presidents, professors, you know, the, the type of preparation and self-confidence and boost that it gives people to go out into a world like this. So uh, it, it is interesting that we have a diversity of people with, with these types of uh, divergent perspectives of the benefit of an HBCU education. Oh, no, I, I agree. I, I, you know, highly esteem an HBCU education. Um, and, and, I, and not to make it sound all doom and gloom, because I have had both. I have had people that esteem HBCUs, but I've had enough people that, you know, carry that negative connotation with HBCUs to have made me kind of take a step back like, hmm? Really? Um, because you know, we, we, it's funny, we were just joking about, you know, me being from the Caribbean, but, you know, having parents who are not native born Americans, HBCUs actually were not a big thing growing up for me. It wasn't like, oh, go to an HBCU, blah, 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 blah. The only, the, the only quote unquote HBCU I knew about was Howard. Um, because my father, he came to America to go to Howard. My uncles, a lot yeah. of, you know, when they came to the U.S. to go to college um, in, in the D.C. area in the 70s, they mm -hmm. all they all came and went to Howard. So I, I knew of Howard, but yeah. growing up, I didn't know that there was like a, over 100 HBCUs yeah. across the country. So it wasn't until I began to do my own research looking for schools. It was like, oh. There's more black colleges out here, like for real. You know what I mean? You say, you, "Oh wow!" And this, you realize, and you find out that there's so many. But then, you know, like I said, after graduating and coming into the workforce, and you start talking to people. Now, again, I'm young, you know, young person, young African American male, just kind of doing this thing. And oh, where'd you go to school? And you're all hype, yeah, yeah. That's why I went to school. But I'm like, oh, you went there. And I'm like, <laughs> Yo, what is going on right now? What is what is really going on? And you end up having to like prove yourself again because you know we have to prove ourselves once right you're black and then you're a woman so you may have to do it a second time right and then here here it is again you feel like you have to kind of prove yourself again because people will some people not all some people will look at you and say oh you went to hbcu oh okay you know one thing that i've noticed recently in the in the talk about hbcus is that uh, there is also a hierarchy that larger society has placed uh, within that group of institutions. For example, there's something called the Black Ivies. Uh, so you yeah, have- I've heard that. Yeah. You have Dillard, Morehouse, Spellman, my school, Fisk, Tuskegee, FAMU, you know, there are a few of them like that, that, you know, every, that people who know institutions of higher learning have heard of, right? And then you have Rust College, and then you have uh, Talladega and Tougaloo and, uh, um, you know, Fort Valley State, et cetera, Lincoln, that some people haven't heard of, which is unfortunate because uh, these schools, again, have, have, have passed the test of time and have countless uh, graduates to, to their credit, people who have gone out and accomplished great things. Oprah went to Tennessee State. We can go on and on. And, uh, but it's just interesting that out of 105, the, the larger world uh, seems to only know about 10 or... <laughs> right, yeah, like five or 10 schools, yep. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really interesting how that works, but maybe that's the way it is with um, with most of the, you know, 3,500 schools in this country. Most people haven't heard of most of them. I don't know if that's, that's what it is. But getting back to uh, Randolph Ross, um, one thing that comes to my mind when we talk about 
uh, athletes <laughs> choosing um, a, a, an HBCU rather than um, a Big 12 or Big 10 or whatever those other, you know, some of those other conferences, um, a, a school in HBCU conference, is I wonder what would happen if more athletes did that. You know, um, when it comes to the larger conferences, especially in certain sports, the vast majority of the talent, the athletic talent, are black students. Oh, yeah. So what if there was what if there was a, a renaissance? Because the thing is, is that before these schools and these conferences even accepted black people, people with that kind of talent went to HBCUs. Exactly. And, and they so could only go to HBCUs. Exactly. So what would happen if this became a trend? That is something that came to my mind when I when I saw the uh, press conference. No, no, no doubt, because it, it, it only takes one. You know, to to sort of start this kind of chain reaction, and for people who don't realize, the U.S. Track and Field Cross Country um, Coaches Association, which is the governing body of track and field, actually has North Carolina A and T ranked as a top twenty-five school. So this is not like he's giving them some kind of pity. You know, like oh, let me just help the poor little HBCU out and go and sign with them. Randolph Ross is signing. Randolph Ross is signing to a top 25 school in track and field. So, I mean, this is not, you know, people, because again, people looking at it like he's doing them some kind of charity or he's doing them a favor. See, those people. Exactly. But those people exist. And that's the. They don't know A&T. Yeah, exactly. They don't know. They don't understand that, hey, there are HBCUs that are putting in work, right? I mean, and think about this. Here is. The, the 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 paradoxical nature of of supremacy. Mm. Most people in their ignorance would say the only thing you black folks are good at is athletics anyway. Okay. <laughs> and then a top track star picks the HBCU. Oh my goodness, what are you doing? But I yeah. thought you said that that's all we're good at. I thought <laughs> you said that that's all that we could do. Why now is there so much angst because I've chosen to go to an HBCU? It's that's it's such a silly you know that's why supremacy racial supremacy is such a silly notion because even when you are right, you you know if you were to fall in line with what people say they would still have something to say they would still yeah. be pushed back why didn't you pick this big school hey you told me that all i'm good at is athletics i'm just gonna go with <laughs> a bunch of people who all were good at is athletics stop crying and complaining now so i just find yeah. that interesting i i i i would also say that i you know it it's going to be a little bit more difficult. I mean, like something like this is more easy to happen in track and field. Um, but when you get to the big sports like basketball and football, I'm not sure how likely it is for high, you know, five-star recruits to start choosing HBCUs just because there's so much money, you know, yeah. in, in, in the NBA and in the NFL for, for top college stars. I, I just wonder if this could ever translate you know, over to the larger sports. I mean, track and field is a little different because, I mean, really, these guys are preparing for the Olympics, which is a kind of a different thing. You know, that's the track that they go on, um, yeah. pun intended. You know, but that's kind of the, the, the what they train for is the Olympics. So it's kind of a different animal, whereas, you know, NBA, NFL, these guys, you know, that's multi-billion dollar industries 
Um, so I, I, I just kind of think, mm, you want to be optimistic? Like, yo, yeah, this could start a whole revolution. But it's like, in reality, <laughs> it's like, man, could this really, and for, the sake you know, of, <laughs> for the sake of the listeners, I just want people to know that uh, the reason is not because all HBCUs are little. Um, North Carolina A&T, I remember when I visited uh, when I was a senior or a junior, no, a junior in high school, we had to take a bus to get across that campus. So it was much bigger than the school I chose, which is Hampton, because I wanted a smaller but not too small school. And uh, so there's a lot of different institution types within HBCUs. There are the larger or medium-sized public institutions, uh, research uh, institutions. There are the small um, uh, liberal arts colleges like St. Aug or Shaw and Raleigh, et cetera. Um, so, but I think that what people have in mind when they think of an HBCU is a small school like Spelman that's in a, an urban area or a small school like, or a small private school like, uh, like Tuskegee, which is in a rural area. They kind of have that in mind. So I think, uh, so of course, smaller, uh, schools, especially private ones have a different level of funding than these, you know, than these top sports schools and, right. and whether they're black or PWIs, they have a smaller level of funding because they're smaller schools. The Ohio State has 40 or maybe might be more than 40,000 students. It's, I think it's the largest institution in the country. Wow. Um, yeah. So we have to, you know, also keep in mind that people are thinking about um, him having that kind of uh, platform. Uh, but yeah, I do. I do agree that there are people who who, who um, regard certain schools better than others just off oh, of, of race. Yeah, bias off, yeah, off a of racial bias has nothing to do with the, I mean one of the um, most famous sports stars um, that went to an HBCU um, happened to go to my HBCU but um, Art uh, Shell Art Shell Hall of Fame football player in the NFL uh-huh. um, played for the Raiders coached the Raiders um, you know he would come back to the campus and you know he would do um commencement and stuff like that and he would talk about you know back in the 70s and things like that even earlier than that 60s primarily not necessarily 70s but more so 60s um where you know black stars could not go to you know big white white institutions um and they were for lack of a better term quote unquote relegated to going to hbcus and how a lot of the white schools did not want to play HBCUs because they knew <laughs> the the better athletes were there. And so, wow! You know, it, it was kind of masked in bias, but really it was, man. We don't want to play those guys, you know, because they're better than us. They're bigger. They're stronger. <laughs> they're faster, um, and we'll get beaten. Um, so when you look at like that, there's a basketball movie. I think it's called Glory Road. Um, where that guy, he was coaching a black team. I forget the school. And they beat the team with Pat Riley um, in the NCAA. And he was talking wow. how, you know, once once they started to play black schools, that kind of stuff happened a lot. That It's just not talked about as much. Um, which then, that's the real, you know, the real reason behind, oh, let's let these students, let's let them play so on our team. Smart. Yeah, they got smart. Yep. Um, this wasn't like, oh, I had such a change of heart. It was, <laughs> we're gonna get our butts kicked if we don't, <laughs> if, if we don't switch up here. Um, so I just, I don't know. This this whole story is kind of like a, you know, things kind of coming full circle, um, where a top athlete chooses an a um, HBCU. And listen, you're you're gonna get things culturally at HBCUs that you just won't get. 
I've I've heard people say things like they don't want to go to an HBCU or they didn't want to go to an HBCU. Uh, again, affluent, intelligent, you know. Uh, otherwise intelligent. <laughs> you know, otherwise intelligent, right. <laughs> Artists formerly known as intelligent. But who would say things like, yeah, I didn't want to go to an HBCU. I don't want my children to go to an HBCU because that's not how the real world is. I want them to experience. No, literally, people said this. I'm friends of mine. I want my. I wanted to experience how the real world is. And I want my children to experience the real world and this black utopia that HBCUs can be sometimes is not the real world. And I say, okay, all right, I, I get it. I get it. You want them to understand that. Listen, white folks are in, are in control of most of the systems in which we live. I get it. And you want them to understand at a younger age um, how to maneuver in that system. That that argument, although it is it, it sounds nonsensical, I can understand it to a certain degree. I can understand because, yes, the utopia that you kind of get to live in at an HBCU is not necessarily how you're going to live once you come out of school. That I can actually understand. Well, I do have to say <laughs> that um, one of the experiences that a lot of HBCU graduates have is is not that they spent four years on a you know utopian campus, uh, but that being in that environment um, increased their their confidence and self-efficacy and um, and everything that they needed within themselves in order to navigate a world like where we live. Mm. So, but as a higher education professional, I have to clap back on that idea um, just because numerically, HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities have a higher percentage of non-black students than PWIs, predominantly white institutions, have of black students. So, Sometimes people will say, well, HBCUs are not diverse. That simply isn't true. And not only that, but they are more diverse uh, than PWIs. That's so very again, good. That's very good. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that this is, the, we're talking about as a collective, 105 HBCUs versus thousands of other schools. But still, 105 HBCUs uh, collectively have a higher percentage of non-white students, I'm sorry, non-black students than, um, than PWIs have of black students. And unfortunately, as a, as a person who's a higher education professional and someone who works uh, also with students who are getting into college, we, we actually look at that part of the stats of that college to see how many black students are actually there. And in many cases, it's pretty abysmal. No, it is. So It is. I, I would definitely agree. Um, and for me personally, that is one of the, the stronger reasons, really has very little to do with the education. It's just um, the environment. And listen, for, for some people, and this is just my, me personally, for some people, that's their fight. Like some black folk love to go into white spaces and try to, you and know, bogart, yeah, and, and be the token. And no, nah, no, nah, you're going to, like for me, I'm like, yo, that's just not my fight. I'm like, yo, I'm not <laughs> trying to live my life like that. Everywhere you go, like, you got to be the token. You got to bogart. No, nah, you're going to hear me. You know, we're going to make, it's like, yo. Sometimes I just want to chill. Like sometimes I just want to yeah. just live. You know, sometimes like even where I live at now, like I've I moved back from a more uh, more predominantly white area back to a more predominantly black area. I'm just like, yo, that ain't my fight. 
Like, I don't want my wife and my children to have to be watched in stores. And when my son gets older, the cops watch. Like, I'm just like, yo, that is not my fight. And so, mm-hmm. for people listening, if 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 that is um, if if that is, you know what what you feel that you want to do, go ahead and do that. I'm not ha- I'm, I'm not trying to throw shade. Like, if you feel led and and called to go into those spaces and really really push back. Um, mm-hmm. Please do that because there is merit to that, and 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 there is you know that that is beneficial. But just know, like that's not everybody's fight. All right, so we're back. We're going to continue our HBCU talk, um, and this this session, this segment, right. We're going to talk about a school that we previously discussed, but this is in a much better light. Um, about a week ago at their commencement, um, Morehouse College, Morehouse College down in the ATL, um, their commencement speaker was Robert F. Smith. Um, for those of you who don't know who Robert F. Smith is, he is a billionaire, technology investor, a philanthropist, uh Rich, rich, rich guy. He's a rich guy. He's, he's the richest. I think he's the wealthiest or richest uh, black American in the country. And, and I think that speaks to the fact that the wealthiest people in the country are business people. They're not entertainers and artists, which people think about when they think about wealthy people. They tend to be business people and entrepreneurs like Robert F. Smith. And just just to really bring it home, um, Robert F. Smith's net worth is in the neighborhood of like five billion yeah, it's like five yeah. billion yeah so, i mean he's a he's a really rich guy he's a really 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 rich guy he's um, a billionaire times five right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um if he if he woke up tomorrow morning with jay-z money he'd probably kill himself no i'm just kidding oh my gosh um <laughs> So yeah, he's a he's a really wealthy guy. So he was the commencement speaker at Morehouse this this semester, this spring. He did their commencement. And as a part of the commencement, he was willing to provide grants to the graduates of the entire 2019 graduating class at Morehouse. I'll let me just repeat that for my college graduates out there who probably mm. spent 15 to 20 years paying off loans. Robert F. Smith agreed to give grants to the entire 2019 graduating class of Morehouse. That is crazy. When you think about um, the percentage, and I'm going to look this up real quick, of African-Americans who have to take out loans. Oh, I didn't even think about a percentage like that. That's interesting. Yeah, because so what is the percentage of African Americans or just Americans? I think most kids, most uh, college students right now are taking out student loans to go to school. Let's see. Is that is that not the case? I think most people, because we're choosing, you know, instead of going to community colleges where we can afford it, <laughs> we're choosing these, uh, you know, high co- higher cost schools and more houses of, is a private, you know, men's college. Here it is. I I wanted to look it up. Um, this is this is very pertinent because over, almost 87 percent of black college students have to borrow student loans compared with only 60 percent 
of white students. And that's according to the National Center for Education Statistics. I wanted to pull I that still up. Think, I still think that's an indictment on our country. I mean, that, that basically certain things are required, at least according to the narrative that our country is giving, in order to have some kind of financial stability and success in life. Yet, people, the, the, the cost of those things, that, that type of training and education uh, is so high that most Americans have to, of, of any color have to take out loans to get it. And, oh, and then they're put in this, in this uh, cycle of basically um, having to use their own hard-earned money um, especially loans that they took out when they were developmental adolescents, which should not be a time where people are allowed to take out loans uh, because of the ad- uh, psychological, you know, adolescent reasons or developmental reasons. But my point is, is that, you know, they actually uh, make it so that you, for in a lot of fields, have to get a degree, but then most people uh, can't afford the high cost of education. And then you have our country not even being able to benefit from the flow of of this type of income through the economy the way it should because we're spending all this time uh, paying back our loans oh yeah and as bad as as what you just said is as bad as that cycle and system that's set up it's 25 percent worse on african americans so if you set the bar low already you know come you know compound that by an additional 25 percent and that's how heavy the student loan weight is on black students. So for like, we really wanted to paint a very grim picture for everybody listening, because that's that makes what Mr. Smith did even that much more amazing. Because okay. just let's let's look at that graduating class at Morehouse. Let's just say it's a couple hundred students. I don't I don't know I don't know what the number. I think it's about four hundred that graduated, and yeah, and then I think that the amount is about four forty million dollars that his uh, family foundation is gonna contribute. That's amazing. So if there are 400 students, 87% of those students more more than likely are using student loans. Mm-hmm. So 350, 300, you know, 370, whatever, of the mm-hmm. 400 are probably going to have to leave Morehouse with significant student loan debt. And for him to have wiped that out, it, it to paint, uh, uh, even more clear picture you're able to start out at sea level almost right you're starting your life out at sea level instead of starting your life in your early 20s below sea level and spending the next 10 to 15 years just getting back to sea level student loans don't go anywhere you can file for bankruptcy and your student loans will remain because mm-hmm. it is a federal loan it's a federal student loan Okay, and if they are um, subsidized, I believe it's worse. The interest is worse, or is it unsubsidized? unsubsidized, I'm sorry, unsubsidized. If they're unsubsidized, the the interest rates are worse. And you know, I'm I'm not sure how the breakdown is at Morehouse for subsidized and unsubsidized loans. But essentially, it's a heavy weight. It's a heavy burden. And for him to come and do that, um, I think is very. It's. It's a couple of things. Of course, it's nice and it's, you know, very, you know, um, it's amazing. It's great. But it's also very culturally aware of him to realize that yes. something like that would have a much greater impact at a school like Morehouse. Right. Mm-hmm. Than say University of Pennsylvania. I mean, just a, any random school, because, again, you have 25 percent more students who are dealing with student loans than you would at a, at a larger um, public institution. Yeah, and speaking of University of Pennsylvania, which is an Ivy League school, 
as well as other Ivy League schools, uh, the the type the, the students who go there tend to be, and this is a generalization, tend to be affluent, more affluent than the average school nationwide. Period. And not only that, but a lot of uh, the Ivy League schools have determined that families who do have below a certain um, uh, income, they'll just go ahead and pay for their education. Um, but most schools in America do not have billion-dollar endowments to do that. And Morehouse, which is 200 years younger than a lot of the Ivy League schools, definitely doesn't. Although you know it has a good endowment for its size and its institution type, being a small private school. So what he did is incredible. I know I would have run laps around <laughs> around my graduation, my graduating class, if he had said that to my to, to me although most of my loans came in grad school. But anyway. It's no, still but the, in, in the article, um, and if you guys want to read it, you, it, there's a Washington Post article, and I believe there's also an article in the Chicago Tribune about it. They were saying that, that people were shedding real tears. Of course, of course. Like, I mean, it wasn't just like, oh, thank you. They were like, people were in that joint balling. It's a like, big deal. Wow. Yeah, it's a huge deal. I mean, like, me personally, I think I spent almost 15 years paying off my student loans. Mm. That's the reason I haven't finished graduate school because I'm like, yo, I'm not getting any loans for graduate school. So the company I used to work for, they were paying for it and I left that company and I haven't finished graduate school yet because I'm just like adamant. I'm like, yo, I'm not getting any more loans, period. And part of the reason that it only took you 15 years, okay? Part of the reason it only took you 15 years is because you attended an in-state institution, right. which means you probably took out fewer loans than many of us. Right, right. So again, somebody might say that, well, that's what folks need to do, but 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 I think that we need to re-examine the cost of higher education, the options for students basically to get marketable skills and areas of expertise and how much that costs. Uh, so that again, our country should have, especially if we claim to be capitalist, should have a vested interest in getting as many people <laughs> um, with areas of expertise and skills as possible into the workforce without have without dragging them back with uh, with debt. First of all, that improves uh, what we ha- the, the the quality of of, of um, professionals that we have. Second of all, it puts more money into circulation. Uh, because they're not paying off loans. But the conspiracy theorists, and I don't know if they're correct or not, would say actually capitalism is designed for uh, for people to be languished in debt. Oh, it is. No, no. I, friends of mine who are in business, who have MBAs and things like that, capitalism is built. Like the way capitalism works is that there is a certain percentage of the populace that have to fail. Like if that wow. that that percentage is built in, because if they oh. don't fail, then the people at the top don't remain at the top. So there has to be a percentage that fail. To give you all um, some percentages here, because what we're really talking about, when when you talk about the number of African-American students that have to take out loans to go to college as um, you know, versus that of their white peers, it really has to speak to generational wealth. It is generational yep. wealth that continues to broaden the wealth gap. Um, there's an article in the Atlantic that speaks to the the wealth the widening wealth gap in the U.S. Um, and as it pertains to generational wealth, directly tying into 
um, college students and college attendance. 41% of white college educated families have at least $10,000 of generational wealth to pass on to their student, to the next generation to go to college, do whatever. Compare that with only 13% of African American families. So you're talking about a, again, that's another 30% difference in generational wealth. And that that is again a very large gap to try to leap when you're talking about attending college you know going to uh higher education whether it's bachelor's master's whatever and having to take out loans and things like that right work your way through whatever as opposed to having someone pay for you not that someone is your parents i mean whatever having someone pay that for you your your the entire trajectory of your life goes in a different direction because you're again you're starting out at sea level you're not starting out 20,000 leagues beneath the sea to 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 quote <laughs> <laughs> to quote we're literary works here right you know we're in the red basically it's yeah. like you should be able to start off in the black not exactly in the red. you're starting out in the black and not in the red and so that like these things like it's it it's much bigger than just oh you know we, we got to be more diverse we got to be no 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 there are generations of things that are cascading and hitting this current generation that we have to look back so when you have and i didn't realize this like you don't realize this me personally you don't realize this until you're around people who have generational wealth Mm-hmm. And I would come home and I would tell I was like, yeah, I was talking to somebody and they were just like some of the things they were telling me, like the 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 thoughts that that wouldn't even cross my mind because I don't come from that kind of generational wealth. Like they were just like, Oh, you know, I'm gonna go out here and do this and if it doesn't work out, you know, I'll just call my dad, you know, and blah 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 blah. And I'm like, What? Like I'm literally <laughs> like that thought would never even because I know anything I do, I gotta make sure I can fund it, like because like I don't have anything coming from the back end. You know, it's like, as a matter of fact, I have to support the back end. So I'm like, man, and you realize, okay, that is what, that's one of the byproducts of generational wealth. It even allows you to think different. It's not just, oh, I got money and I can go to school and I can do this. But you can even think about things in a different way. You can be a little bit more adventurous like I'm, I, there's a. We, she's been on the show a couple times. Um, y'all, y'all know Andrina, and one of the things that Andrina likes to say is that all entrepreneurs are not created equal. You know, <laughs> people like to talk about, oh, just be an entrepreneur and we can just do this. She's like, no, 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 no. All entrepreneurs <laughs> aren't created equal, and you know, things like I, I think things like generational wealth speak directly to that because if I come from generational wealth my entrepreneurship is going to be totally different than somebody that got to go out here and scrape and grind. And I think even the college experience, right? The college experience differs if you have generational wealth. It's probably certain schools, right, that you won't even think about. It's certain colleges you won't even apply to, right, because of the money. And that's just keeping it 100 yeah i think generational wealth just allows you to live i think it gives you the freedom to actually live instead of being in a gerbil wheel you know for most of your of your active life uh i really do not think that god went through the trouble of designing us for the purpose of paying bills and croaking 
Like it just doesn't make sense. Um, Paying it's like, bills it's, and croaking. Yeah, that, that's basically you know God made all of this and put all you know the the skills and talents and abilities in this person, and now you know because of the environment we live in, uh, we're spending most of our waking life and most of our able-bodied life working, paying bills, and getting ready to pass on. It just you know so the system is is bad. I remember one time I was in around U Street in D.C. And this is when I started my entrepreneurship. So my brain was starting to, to see things a little differently. And we're going to go back to uh, the topic at hand. But I just have to say this about generational wealth because someone kind of opened my eyes to something. I was at this intersection and I saw this sunglass, the, the, this uh, sunglasses store. And the sunglasses store was in a brand new building. It took up most of the retail space. I'm sure they paid about $40,000 a month minimum. $40,000 a month minimum for that space. And I saw that they were selling sunglasses. <laughs> so I said, well, now, wait a second. Now, mind you, this is a high-end sunglass shop. Um, but when, even when you have a high-end sunglass shop where maybe the sunglasses might have cost about $500. Last time I saw some high-end ones, 500 or more. You don't have the number of people buying, you know, that level of sunglasses. And they're definitely to not- To be able to sustain that dream, yeah. So, so, so I asked somebody who, who's more wise in this area than I, I'm like, how in the, I'm looking at the product and I'm looking at the, the retail space. How in the world does this person pay their rent off of that? And the person said, oh, the, the, this, this is a, a company that, um, you know, probably a wealthy person's child opened up, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they can, they can afford for a good decade or so, maybe even for a lifetime to bleed, you know, to, to, bleed, to hemorrhage uh, profits. Uh, by you know being in that space and having and getting a little bit of uh, practice being an entrepreneur, <laughs> and I didn't even think about that. But one thing I want to say back to our topic is that uh, there are a few students to for whom what you just said is not lost. And there are a few students. I, I saw uh, an interview, and one of the students said, "You know what? What Robert Smith did." is not going to just impact my parents, but it's going to impact my children and their children. Right. The fact that I'm coming out debt free and I can actually use my own money, right. you know, to build wealth and, and to do a lot of a lot of things are going to impact us for generations. I think this is a huge deal. No, it, it is a huge deal. So shout out to Robert F. Smith. Brother, you can sponsor us anytime. We are two HBCU <laughs> graduates. You could throw yeah. some ducats over here, yeah. but we we do just give a shot. And and listen to just wrap this segment. Compare. That's why I said it, it. It's more than just oh, it's nice and amazing. It's so culturally aware. Okay. Compare and contrast that to your boy Dr. Dre, who donated oh, seventy million back in like twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen. I think it's twenty thirteen. Seven million. Did you seventy. Say seven? Seventy. Seven zero. No, 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 no. He was straight out of Compton with that seventy million. <laughs> seventy and he donated million. To the University of Southern California. He donated to USC. Now, listen. I know it's students at USC who could use the money, but as we showed you by the statistics, the percentages are significantly higher at HBCUs. Again, and it's funny because well, it's not really funny. It's more sad than anything. After he made the the donation and it you know was all over the news, there were tons of HBCU presidents who reached out to him publicly and was like, "Dre, 
you could have sent that our way. What's like now we're not trying to spend your money, but be a little bit more culturally aware when you have um, schools that are on the verge of closing. Right. Because of financial reasons, um, 70 million dollars goes a long, long way. I think Dre became a billionaire after Apple bought Beats. After yes. Apple bought the Beats company, he became a billionaire. So it wasn't like Dre was hurting for the money. He wasn't hurting for the money. If he could make the $70 million donation, it's clear he was not hurting for the money. Um, but yes, I think just the the lack of cultural awareness, right? Yes. This is where Robert F. Smith is not just a nice gesture, but to do it at a school like Morehouse, right, is so culturally aware that's where it's like, mm. and I think this is something that you say a lot, Eve, where we have to realize our most, you know, our the the the, the wealthiest African Americans in the country are not entertainers. They're not sports stars. They're business people, right? Who are a little bit, probably a little bit more astute and a little bit more aware of things than our entertainers are. And a lot of times we look to the entertainers, but yeah. in actuality, and we yeah we we talked about this with Kaepernick. To assume that these people are up on most of the things that they need to be up on culturally, this might be a little bit naive to think that. You know, they were entertainers or sports stars or whatever they were. They were focused on that um, and not on other things. And so that's why they would see, oh, I'll just drop 70 million to USC and not even think nothing of it, right? Whereas someone who's a little bit more astute and maybe a little sharper the, 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 the sharper knife in the drawer might say this money would go much further at a school where there's a much higher percentage of people who are in need of the money right yeah. not that people are not in need at USC but the percentages are just significantly higher at, at Morehouse Robert Smith could have given that money to like I said University of Pennsylvania USC University of Maryland oh, no. Cornell, right? But that forty million goes a lot further at Morehouse because of the, like I said, the eighty-seven percent of those students that were probably on federal student loans. So, shout out to Robert F. Smith, you know. And listen, Dre, you can still sponsor us anytime too, bro. You can still sponsor us anytime. All right, so we're gonna wrap here, folks. We don't really have a this week in the news. Um, Although I probably could make this a this week in the news because it's still people doing stupid stuff. So. If you're in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, um, you may be aware of the chicanery that's been going on in Northwest, <laughs> in, <laughs> in, in Northwest D.C. Um, so like most cities in the United States right now, unfortunately, um, Washington, D.C. has been, I, I, I want to say suffering, but suffering is probably not the best word, but experiencing um, some transition. Those of us in the know like to call it gentrification. <laughs> um, and a lot of the former residents of the city have been kindly escorted out. And there have been a lot, a lot over the past decade, um, there's been a significant shift in the demographics of the city. Um, now, that's fine until you realize that one of the largest HBCUs in the nation exist right in the middle of Washington, D.C. And so what's been happening is as the demographics surrounding the college or university 
um, has been changing, you still have about 15,000 African-American students at, again, one of the largest and most prestigious HBCUs in the nation right in the middle of the city. And so what's been happening over the past couple of months is that, you know, the folks who live around the college do what they do. So they've been jogging. They've been having picnics. They've been walking their dogs all through the campus. And, you know, listen, that that's not what we do. The private campus, by the way, the private campus. Right. It it is a private institution. It's it's, it's not a public institution. Yeah. Um, Where, you know, public institutions, you're paying local taxes you know, and therefore, yes, you can walk through the campus of public. This is a private historic school. And, you know, it's funny because I don't even think the issue is that people are cutting through the campus. If, if you were just cutting through the campus to go somewhere, that's one thing. But there have been a couple of articles. There was one on News One. There was one on WAMU um, where, like I said, people have been coming on the campus, like having little picnics and like walking their dogs and dogs are pooping. And so y'all know that's not what we do right that's not what we do so the students are like yo this is not going to continue so there have been a lot of different clashes and confrontations um and this has been on the news locally in in dc there have been a lot of different clashes and confrontations between the residents around the the university and the university students now and as for some of the arguments on the part of the of these recent residents, again, Howard University was built in or was established in 1867. So yeah. of course, Howard University predates every person and their great grandmother who <laughs> moved into the Shaw neighborhood of Washington, D.C. However, one of the residents had the, had the uh, audacity to separate his lips and say, well, the campus should move. We're here now. I the know. campus. That, and, and folks, that, that was on the news. That was locally in D.C. The guy was on the D.C. news when he said that. I saw that. He was like, yeah, they just, just moved the school. If you got a it's problem amazing. with us, just move the school. Um, Yeah, so for all of you out there, by the way, that say, there's nothing wrong with gentrification. This is what happens when gentrification goes goes awry. Because here, so what... Be, because of that, um, there's been a lot of different things going on in D.C. Um, some of the residents, in, in addition to this, and we're you know staying on our HBCU route, but there's a whole movement now talking about don't mute D.C. because folks have been complaining about the go-go music, so the different go-go bands have been doing like pop-up concerts all through <laughs> the city. I don't know if you heard about it, Eve, but it's it's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's crazy yeah. right now. Oh, okay, it's been all well, over yeah, the city. It's, I used to be, honestly, for the sake of, of honesty, I used to be one of the people who didn't have as much of a problem with gentrification. It's partially my idealism. Because my in my mind, I was saying, first of all, this is an economic thing. This is not racial. So, in fact, you have, I know people personally who are Black who have gentrified neighborhoods. Um, and, you know, these are people who have means and the people who don't have means were the ones who were priced out. I didn't. I had trouble with with them being priced out. Of course, I think that a jurisdiction should have equally safe and nice neighborhoods for poor people that they do for anybody else. The house might be smaller, but at least it's safe and you know aesthetically pleasing. But the issue that I had was that people were racializing it rather than saying uh, that it's economic. However, uh, I was corrected when I noticed that in neighborhoods, even in D.C., when I lived there, that black middle class and upper middle class and wealthy people were gentrifying uh, a lot of the good the services and improvements to those neighborhoods did not happen 
because though we are able to look at two black people and tell clearly which one is of means and which one isn't, our larger society just sees two black people. And, I appreciate uh, you saying our largest society. Yes. <laughs> you know, they just see two black people. They right. don't realize that we have economic diversity and social diversity, et cetera. And so as a result, uh, much l- larger uh, t- uh, lengths of time or much longer lengths of time would, would pass before uh, the city or the jurisdiction or, or, or uh, private uh, companies would come in and actually improve. So I started to realize that it is racial, it's not just economic. Uh, but one thing about what you're talking about now and another issue that I've had with gentrification is I think that if you move into a neighborhood, you have decided to move into that neighborhood along with the cultural elements of that neighborhood and the, and the things that that the, the, the timetable, the things that flow uh, during certain days in, uh, in that neighborhood. Who are you to be a newcomer who deliberately chose that neighborhood and then turn around and say, stop? Uh, that reminds me here in, 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 in uh, well, I should not say, I shouldn't say here, I should say uh, my hometown and even in the borough of Brooklyn, there's this big poster of Biggie Smalls and the people, the gentrifiers moved into that neighborhood of Brooklyn and then complained about the poster that they moved into the neighborhood. Uh, they moved into a neighborhood and they complained about a poster that was there before they moved. Or um, in Malcolm X Park in DC, there was an issue with the drummers. There's drumming at a certain time, certain days. That's a part of the flavor of the neighborhood. Who are you to move into a neighborhood like that and then turn around and say, now the drumming is too loud? I mean, that that is the height of entitlement. So I wanted to read a, a couple of excerpts from that, from the News One article, um, this thing, because this is so blatant. It's it's one thing to have an issue with a, with a Biggie Smalls, right, uh, mural, or to have an issue like I was talking about the um, Don't Mute DC or hashtag Mochella. That's because we, we say Mo. They say, what's up, Mo? That's a DC thing. So okay. like Coachella, they, you know, they kind of mashed the two words against it, Mochella. So this started from a Metro PCS. Y'all know Metro PCS. It's a cell phone company. There's a store up on Florida Avenue. They, they used to play go-go in the store, kind of loud. Yeah. Well, if y'all know that part of the city, they built up a bunch of high-rise condos and people started complaining music is too loud. And so then it wait a second, out. wait, wait, AJ. I, I have to say it again. These people, I assume, because when you move into a condominium, that is a huge purchase. So I assume that these people actually went around the neighborhood, visited it, investigated it, made sure they want to live in that neighborhood. And on the corner of of Georgia and Florida, they knew because it happens all the time. There isn't a day like before this, like it is with, like there is with drumming across town. They knew that that was the neighborhood they were moving into. Yet they move in and then they complain about the noise. Like the, the arrogance just astounds me. That's what I wanted to actually speak to because it's one thing to beef, like I said, with the Biggie Smalls mural, Metro PCS store. Okay. But to go to the lengths of saying a hundred and fifty year old institution should just go ahead and move if they have a problem, I think that the 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 heights of that arrogant behavior <laughs> is um it's, it's astonishing to me to to think that you could just blatantly move into a space and expect even if that was a thing right let's just say that was a thing you could just move to 
do, do you know what it would entail to move a university? Like to even part your lips to say something like that is so is so unaware. Um, but these are the fruits of gentrification. Um, and so we just wanted to throw that out there for all the people because there are people that say, oh, no, no, but it helps the neighborhoods and it makes them better and it brings, you know, infrastructure and this, that, and the third. And yes, it does those things. But there are other things because neighborhoods are people. Yeah. We, we you know, the neighborhood is not the building. The neighborhood is not the street. The neighborhood is the people and the culture that they come with. Now, yes, listen, I get it because that, that strip of Georgia Avenue was super violent back in the day. So we understand that there's violence and there's crimes in certain black neighborhoods. I'm, I'll be foolish not to, not to acknowledge that. Well, I, I get it. But there's just a way that you have to go about integrating a neighborhood. That's all we're saying. If, and if you if, don't like the neighborhood, don't move there. Yeah, if you well, don't uh, want the neighborhood, don't move there. Right. If, if you don't like the fact that there's a 150-year-old historically black university in your neighborhood with nearly 15,000 African-American students that come from all over the country to come to that school, right? And the world. The, 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 excuse me, you're right, the world. Um, don't part your lips with foolishness like, oh, well, just go ahead and move if you don't like it here. No, you move. <laughs> Let's just keep it 100. No, you move. You get out. If you have an issue with the school, you get out. All right, so, and that's just I don't know. That's just me being a little salty. I don't know. I just got a little, got a little. You know, it's we got to do. We we got to do better. We we got to do better. Um, we have to move into places and be willing to become immersed into the place. And I think that's just an American trait. We try to move into places and 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 turn it and change it and make it into what we think it should be, rather than moving into a place and kind of immersing ourselves into what that place is that's the way that um you know transition should take place so anyway we do thank y'all for rocking with us you know even though things ended on it we was laughing and joking now we done got all angry and salty all right we gotta <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know in the in the words of Shir- of shuri from the black panther these colonizers coming in touching everything man stop exactly. touching stuff colonizers anyway we we do love our white brothers and sisters. We we just mess with y'all. Just 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 holler at your uncles and and tell them stop coming on the news, throwing shade at Howard University. Anyway, we do thank y'all for rocking with us this week. Y'all know how it is. Um, this whether we're talking about track stars or gentrifiers or college donations from wealthy billionaires, you know we're gonna keep God in the mix. So for Eve, this is AJ saying peace. Peace. Let's get started, I won't teach you Let me set apart who is my people The ones who set in their heart to be believers Press on to the mark to follow Jesus When it gets hard, they be seeking the leaders Fathers that help them heal when they are beaten Or help them see the meaning when they're grieving Don't follow their feelings that are being misleading they're the ones that keeping it biblical Keeping 100 when others saying it's fictional A relational life, that is how it's scriptural A stay in the light while cats be living typical Integrity we chose cause folks is hypocritical Religious midwit, man that is how they picture you Wishing you would go the way of the extinctional You remind them too much of what they listen to